All right, so if you would, turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We'll be specifically in verses 1 through 7. And before I get started, I have a couple things I wanted to say. First, Sinclair Ferguson is a very famous uh, pastor from Scotland. And he preached an amazing sermon on this particular text. And some of his illustrations, just the way he brought forth the text has so shaped and influenced my understanding of this text that you're going to hear from him a lot in this sermon. And he is just an important person uh, in how I loved the book of Revelation in general. And so very thankful for him and just wanted to give him a lot of credit before I get started. And then also, there are many of you here who I am friends with, love dearly. You know way more about scripture and the Lord Jesus than I do. And so it can be very hard to sometimes preach in such a way that is true to the text. But I want you to know that if I have understood this correctly and am going to preach it correctly, then it is not me speaking. It's the Lord Jesus. And out of his mouth, as Revelation says, comes a double-edged sword. So it'll be him speaking to you this morning through this text, not me. And so if it wounds or it hurts, I believe that's our Savior speaking to you. All right. So why do you and I need x-rays? No one really likes to get the bigger x-rays like the MRIs or the ones that put you in the big tube for, but why do we need an x-ray or something like that? Well, we need an x-ray when there's something that we think is wrong with us. There's something inside of our bodies that we can't see unless we look inside. And so we need someone to administer an x-ray for us, like a doctor, and then interpret that news and give it to us. Revelation 2 through 3, the, the part of Revelation written specifically to the seven churches, is an x-ray for them. And then also, in turn, every church that has come after that has read the book of Revelation specifically out loud in church. I want to take you to Revelation 1, 1 through 3. You can look in your Bible, but you can also look on the screen as well. This is what it says right at the beginning. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the thing, things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed, church don't miss it, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Alright. So we can clearly see that the purpose. And how we receive this blessing. In this letter is right there. It's reading out loud. In the congregation. On the Lord's day. Because that's what happens. He receives this on the Lord's day. And this, I believe that this is a faithfulness to this text. To say that when we read it out loud. And we begin to listen and apply this text. To our lives, we receive a blessing. It says it in the text. And this is a, first and foremost, a revelation about Jesus Christ. 
for his servants to know what's going on and what will come to So what do you and I need to take away from Revelation 2, 1 through 7 today? There's a few things, but I believe at least one big thing is this. You and I, this morning, need the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our church needs the one who walks among the candlesticks, as it begins to say in chapter 1, which are the seven churches, which represent all churches universally, and holds the seven stars, which are the angels of those churches. The one whose eyes are blazing like fire, and he sees through body and soul. That's what that means. The one who, when he speaks, it sounds like thunder or the voice of a multitude of people screaming at the top of their lungs. Who has the sword of truth, and it comes out of his mouth when he speaks. See, the church in Ephesus, the church we're talking about this morning, they need an x-ray. Something's wrong on the inside, and they don't see it. And today, Jesus wants to give us an x-ray. Let's read Ephesians, or <laughs> Ephesians, Revelation 2, 1-7 through to the church of Ephesus. The word of God says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, and are not, and found them to be false. And I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And for us this morning, listen carefully to verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches and to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So before we walk through this text, I do think it's important for us to get in a helicopter and, and just fly up for just a minute to see a little bit more of what Revelation is actually all about. And then, you know, I do teenage ministry. They ask the question, why a lot? So why would we do that? Why do we need a little bit of a helicopter ride to see a little more? Well, Revelation, if you didn't know this, is probably the most abused and misunderstood book in all of the Bible. And it's abused and misunderstood because precisely of what I just said. Because no one really understands or seeks to do the really hard work to understand and read broadly about Revelation. Just who we are. We, we want quick, short bites of information. So I have a few slides. I'm going to try to walk through this very quickly. But Revelation is an apostolic, meaning John the Apostle wrote it, apocalyptic prophecy and letter. Nero is a key evil figure throughout the book, and he is disguised in various illustrations throughout the book of Revelation. And then you also see, at times, the current emperor Domitian also appears. 
They have been experiencing intense persecution since the reign of Nero in the fires of Rome, which he blamed Christians for, and then began the mass extinction of Christians. We also see that it is written by the Apostle John, which we saw earlier in Revelation 1. And so, these were actual churches that he wrote to. So it said, we said it was a letter written to actual churches, seven in particular, around Asia. And you can kind of see a nice little map for you to get an idea. They kind of form this really beautiful circle. So if you come off of Patmos, you land in Ephesus, you do a nice big loop all the way around to the seven churches in Asia. So, it's an amazing letter, uh, but also it's more than that. Revelation is meant to engage and enliven your imagination and your emotions for Jesus Christ as you and I seek to persevere to the end as Christians. Therefore, encouragement, it's meant to encourage you, strength, and make you brave by the awesome glory and power of God being revealed to you. It is never meant to strike fear into your heart about the future or to confuse you, to embolden you. So most of the confusion comes from, again, our misunderstanding of what Revelation also includes, which is apocalyptic literature. And you're already like, oh, dang. <laughs> if you've never heard that phrase before, it is kind of a jarring phrase. You're, you might be thinking of dystopian movies and things like that. That's not what that means in ancient Greek. What is apocalyptic literature? Well, first, I think the apocalypse here, or the word apocalypse, is translated revelation. So you could read the first verse, a apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation. Revelation really just means to make something that was hidden known. To make something that was previously hidden known. And sadly, you and I are not trained or even operate with this type of literature very often. People are presented as animals, as you would see with Nero and Domitian. Historical events are presented as natural phenomenon, things like earthquakes and floods. Colors and numbers have meanings, all those types of things. Its goal, of the, the goal of apocalyptic literature, again, is something, there's something necessary and I really want to engage some of you that are the cerebral type that never get into much creativity. Apocalyptic literature is literally meant to drive into your imagination. It's meant to get deeper into your heart and soul with imagery that leads you to ultimate endurance in faith, as I already said earlier. It has the power to hook you, to grab you deep inside and awaken you. It wants to grab you emotionally as you think about the songs that are sung by the saints around the throne and the elders and the angels and all these things that are happening. So it's to grab you and bring you up and to make you ascend and to see big things. It's meant to make you be shaped by what truly is happening around you. So you could be here this morning. I think there's probably three types of people. And you are a non-believer. Or you are somebody that is headed drastically in that direction. And you think, man, 
everything else in the world in my life that is not of Christ feels way better than anything that Christ is a part of. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I'm just going to start doing things that finally feel good to me and just stop worrying about Christ in the church, in the Bible. Maybe you just have stopped caring. You're apathetic. You don't really care about these things anymore. But you keep showing up. I'm glad you're here this morning. Maybe you're in the second group. Maybe you feel like you just can't get ahead as a Christian. You're always being pushed down. You're never getting somewhere. It's like you're running on a treadmill that is never going anywhere. You feel beaten down by your sin, by your shame, your regret, your sadness, your loneliness, your place in life. Or, you're the last category, things are good. The deals are coming in. School feels easy. You're weird if that's true. But the birds are chirping and the kids are obeying. That's never true. But maybe for you it is. Great job. Friends are coming. The coffee's flowing. And all three of those groups need the revelation of Jesus Christ today more than ever. All three need it. And the church of Ephesus probably falls more in the third group. Everything is good. Everything is awesome when you're a part of a team, right? And so they are on track in their minds by worldly standards. They look really stinking good. But Jesus, being a master physician, he reads the x-ray and he says, it's not good. Let's walk through it. First point, the church of Ephesus. Verse 1, the, to the angel of the church in Ephesus writes. Just want to take a brief pause. Ephesus, again, you saw it. They're a port city. And in the ancient world, port cities make money. It's where all the trade comes through. So they have massive emperor worship happening. So they've built some temples to emperor at the time Domitian. His statue's there. They are literally worshiping him as a god. Then they have, that's just not just him. They have all the other Greek gods that they're paying tribute to. And money is just going into all of this. Money, 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 money in Ephesus. It has, at the time, one of the seven wonders of the world. But it's dead. It needs Christ. And there is a thriving, well, at the time, they would have set a thriving church there. Verse 1, let's continue it. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The nice thing is I don't have to unpack that super much because it explains it all in chapter 1. So just go back and read chapter 1 when you have some time. But what it's meaning there is that the imagery there is that Jesus is holding the stars, the seven stars, the seven angels that are the he representative head of the churches. There's a lot of debate on what that means, but I'm not going to get into that. And so he walks among the churches, though, that are represented by the lampstands, or you could say candlesticks. And he's walking and holding. Those imagery, that imagery we are meant to see and to really take in. I want us to imagine Jesus, nail-pierced hands, nail-scarred feet. And he walks and he holds. And he's walking around his churches. It means he's present with them. It means that he loves them. That he's always near. That he's never left them. Some of these churches, their condition is so sad. 
They're so beaten down by persecution in the world, but Jesus' wounded hands and feet are close. And as leaders, at least at CCF, as I have pondered on this text in this particular part, I know that in our elder meetings and other things, we push ourselves to ask good questions. What does Jesus want us to really do? At least I try to, and I know we're all trying to. We could do better. But as Jesus is walking and he's giving this x-ray, our church, and you particularly this morning, need to ask this question. What does Jesus really want? And if you were to look at 90% of our weeks, and if you were to look at America's churches, how would that play out? We end up saying things like this, well, I really want this, I'm really good at these things, here's our gifts, here's our money, here's our stuff. Surely Jesus is okay with that, because look how cool we are and how awesome we are. Man, this is such a good thing, Jesus must really be pleased with us. Look how many people are here. Sinclair Ferguson, he says this, he says, we bring and we spend millions and millions of dollars as the American church for, to get experts to come in and tell us how good are we? How good's our worship? And what do we mean? We mean how good is our music? How good is our stuff? How good are our lights? How good are all the things that you see as you walk in the door? How's our first impression? How's this? How's that? Those are good things, right? They're, they're not bad things to ask people those things. But then we may never ask the most important person ever, who is Jesus Christ, the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is never consulted. And this is, I believe, exactly where Ephesus is. They had gotten into this pattern. You see, as we're going to see, they are analyzing culture really well. They can spot a false teacher a mile away. They've guarded their church well with right doctrine. They were known in the community. They were at the center doing ministry in, the, in a massive port city of the Roman Empire. They had a rich history, as we'll look at in a minute. However, based on what Jesus says to them, it seems like they had stopped asking, what will please the Lord Jesus Christ? Sinclair Ferguson says this, the American church spends millions in churches asking experts to tell them how good their stuff is, how good they look doing it, how sweet our sound is and our moods are. We ask the expert, how good is our worship? But there is only one who can tell you what the quality of your worship is. And he has told you in the scriptures the meaning, the measure of its quality. That's a dagger in the heart. We keep asking people to tell us how good we are. And we're not asking the most important person who has told us in his word. And he does it. And he goes right to the heart. Let's keep going. Point to the works of the, the Ephesian church. Verse 2. Jesus says to them, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Okay? You and I, 
we're reading this x-ray, or at least we're listening to the doctor in the room, it started off good. We're okay with this. These are good things. They were not tolerating evil people in their midst as a church. So what does that mean? They were guarding the flock really well. They were keeping out false teaching, and they were holding up right doctrine, and people were operating and behaving well together, and they were promoting holiness and, and godliness. Those are good things. We should strive to be just like that and, as well. Let's see, keep going. It says, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. That's an amazing thing. We should be doing the same thing. There are still people trying to call themselves apostles today. So we should also be working that same way. We need to be guardians of the truth. We need to be looking in the scriptures. What does it say? And is this person aligning with that? We should also be doing that. So that's commendable. Verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. Church family. If you're listening online... You and I have endured basically zero hardships in terms of the persecution that they have faced to what we face. We are, look at our space. Look around at this building. We are unbelievably blessed. Paul would have been like, he would have probably passed out seeing a church like this. They endured serious persecution and remained faithful. So commendable. Exactly how we should be. We should be the exact same way. So I want to jump ahead to, and include verse 6 in this section because it's almost as like Jesus like, oh yeah, in this last thing. Verse 6. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So they are guarding the church well again. They have cast out this cult-like false teaching movement in the Nicolaitans. They've, it seems that they were teaching about sexual immorality and uh, other serious uh, teachings of the faith. And so they had pushed them away and, said, and condemned their teaching. All right. And so one of the big things we need to be asking as a church and as a person attending this morning is do I love what Jesus hates? Those are big questions. We never slow down a lot to ask questions like that, do we? Like to sit and ask the question, do I actually love what Jesus hates? Remember the church of Ephesus was blessed, as I had said. Here's some of the things about them. Paul had preached there for three years. And this is not much exaggeration, five hours a day. Some of you are like dying inside. Three, three, three years for five hours a day. And the whole church came. And not only did they come, they wanted to be there. They wanted more of God's word. They were hungry for God's word. Apollos, who was an amazing first century preacher, he's mentioned in 1 Corinthians and in other places, and he, um, he preached in Ephesus for a time. And it is even, we can almost know, uh, almost for certain through church tradition that John himself may have been there and pastored there, and Timothy. So church, the, the history is rich. The teaching was rich. Something was wrong. Church, I think one of the things we need to think about this morning is if we're primarily known for what we're against than what we're for, there's a caution. 
in a social media age where it's really quick to point out and to throw your opinion out, if you were to go through your social media feed and it was to show you more that you're a critical person and you're constantly critical of other people and their opinions, it may be a caution. Christians should be known more for what they're for. A glorious gospel in Jesus Christ. And a willing to forgive Savior. But you wouldn't get that impression, I don't think. So we can think we are a Christian based on what we, the teaching we sit under. The way that we read, who we read, how we respond. That's not how we're a Christian at all. It lost the main thing. We need to ask that for our third point. What's the main thing? The main thing is this. They had lost their first love, Jesus Christ. If you've uh, been around the holiday season and you have a TV and you've watched any commercials, you've seen all of these commercials for brand new iPhone 13 Pros. And when you get a brand new iPhone 13 Pro, what do you do if you're like me and you're a millennial? You're going to take that phone, you're going to buy the best screen for it, you're going to buy a really nice case, you're going to make sure all the bubbles are nice and removed, and you're going to make sure that when the kids play with it, they're in a padded room, and they're never going to drop it, right? And then you're going to wash their hands and make sure they're not greasy. What happens in six months? I'm throwing that phone like a Frisbee across the room, right? Like that thing is beat to death, no one cares about it anymore, why? Because I've moved on. I've moved on to more lovely things. And church, can't we see this in marriages too? If you're married, sorry, if you're not. But it's a good observation. How does the dating period start out? Passion. You're throwing rose petals everywhere they go, right? You're, you are creating like a custom-made letter with wax seals on it. And I did do that when I was dating Bethany, right? Like I was doing weird things like that that are so over the top because I'm on the verge of, well, I am idolatrous, right? Like we are worshiping them. We're giving them all our stuff, all our time, all of our attention. Ten years later, you sit and you look across that thing. And you have to just say, let's get back to what we had. Why? Because that wears off. Sometimes we lose that first love we had at first. Look at verse 4, church, and really look at it. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. It begs the question, what was the love they actually had at first? They're doing all this really good stuff. Well, what could it possibly mean to love the Lord Jesus Christ the way you did at first? That's a great question. I'm going to do my best to answer it. In Acts chapter 19, they had rented a lecture hall. And for three years, they listened every day for five hours a day to the word of God proclaimed. It is said that the whole of Asia heard Because of the people of Ephesus. The whole of Asia in the ancient world, pre any fast method of communication, the whole country heard of their hunger 
for the word of God. Five hours a day for three years. And church, we struggle for this 35-minute sermon. It begs the question, what is our appetite for the word of God? When the Bible is being faithfully preached and we're under it and it's, it's coming down on us as the church is gathered together on the Lord's Day, the special day, and it's coming down on us, we're being transformed by it. It's changing us. But what's changed today? We've lost an appetite for the word. And the Ephesians have lost theirs. It also seems like... Praying deep, passionate prayers for the lost to know Jesus Christ, their Savior and Lord. And that people would know the name of Jesus Christ. The nature of this x-ray then, if we're being honest, and we're going to let Jesus actually speak to us, if we have ears to hear this morning, we're a little too busy, as Eric said last week. Church, if we would look, if we would pause, and we would consider the x-ray, I think we would see something really staggering and really hard to hear. Not everyone. I'm not, not pointing the finger. I'm just going to let Jesus work. But it could be that you don't really love the Lord Jesus that much at all. And that is a hurting statement. That's why I said what I said at the beginning. I believe we need the kind of gentle surgeon, Jesus Christ, to give us a surgery that hurts to heal us. Some of us do love Jesus, so I'm not, I'm going to let Christ do that through you, through the Holy Spirit. But Sinclair gives the example. We could probably put many people who call themselves Christians in a room with nothing in it and say, think about the Lord Jesus for five minutes. And they would find that a huge trial because they don't know five minutes of Jesus. And they think they're okay. You could say, a love for Jesus is a love for his commandments. As he says in John 14. Church, if we are honest, there is nothing more more devastating when we don't pray how much do we have to hate people to not pray for them and I think it comes down to the fact that we have not asked ourselves the harder questions which are do I really love Jesus the way that I am supposed to the way that I did it first when I love to read his word and I love to take it in and I love to tell people about him. That's why we need the, the x-ray. We don't come out to pray together. We find it a huge trial. We need x-rays. We need individual x-rays this morning. We could be asking, why aren't people asking Christians more questions? 
I'm out in public. I'm there. I have my Bible open. Why aren't people asking me more questions? Why aren't we making the kind of impact that Ephesus was making early on, especially with all of the advancements in technology that we have? Well, church, I'm here to tell you the sheer radical counterculturalism of a church who desires fellowship so much that they are together all the time reading God's word and praying. That is a church that will change the world. It's already been done, but we keep trying to innovate it and make it different. And we have not stopped to ask the, the Lord Jesus, what would please you? Why aren't people asking us more questions? Why aren't they more interested in Christians anymore? Because apparently there's so little about our lives that would make them ask us any question at all. This may be a symptom that you might have lost your first love. So Sinclair points to the amazing story in the gospel of the apostle Simon. And he's critical of a poor woman who comes in and she pours out her ointment on Jesus' feet and his hair. Why is he so mad? You could say because it was expensive or those types of things. But I think why he's mad is that he snaps at her and he ridicules her. And why? Because it ex she exposed his lack of love for Jesus. He ex she exposes him. And then Jesus responds and says something like, Simon, I have something I need to say to you. And for us this morning, we are Simon. If you're here this morning and this is just convicting your heart, that is not me. That is the Holy Spirit doing that. Jesus has something to say this morning. Are we listening? And here's where we must go. Verse 5. Because I love our Savior. He doesn't leave us there. He's a surgeon. He wounds us to heal us. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, where you, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, he doesn't say any of these things to crush us. He, do, he says these things so that we may repent. He says these things so that we may not draw near to Jesus Christ and receive rich forgiveness. Rich mercy. Repentance, then, is grieving our exposed sin and turning from that sin to the Lord Jesus. Loving the things of the Lord again. This morning, if you feel that conviction of the Spirit, what must you do is repent. That is simple. It is a simple thing. Turn to the Lord and desire Him. Ask Him for that desire to want more of Him and to get back to the love we had at first. Because what happens if we don't repent? What happens to Ephesus if they don't repent? Well, it says it. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So, losing the main thing ultimately is extremely dangerous. Because it requires the removal of the lampstand. That doesn't mean their salvation. It means what Ezekiel said. Ezekiel is being drawn on here, I do believe, and in Ezekiel, God's glory was shown in his prophecy leaving the house of God. Why? Well, the people of God thought that it was external forces that were the problem, and God says, oh, no, 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 the problem is you. 
It's internal. It's your own hearts that don't want to worship me. So I'll remove my presence. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. He's going to draw it out of Ephesus and move it somewhere else. But Jesus is saying, before that stage is here, I'm going to show you the cancerous spot in your x-ray and give you the chance to turn and repent. So what's our cancerous growth this morning potentially? Well, it is this. If we don't have an appetite for the word, we don't want to pray. And we aren't out there in a world loving his commandments and telling people the good news and loving our neighbors as ourselves. We may have lost our first love. And here's the most sobering thing. Is there a church in Ephesus today that traces itself back to this truth? No. It's a ruin. Last point, ears to hear, verse 7. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So if you're struggling, stay with me because we're right there. Where is this tree of life found? Well, it's in Genesis 2 and it's, and it's also in Genesis or in Revelation 22. Let's read that together. It's on the screen. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the city's main street, the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse, amen, church. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and the servants will worship him. Church, do we want to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God? If your answer is yes, praise Jesus. Because sinner, the one who is here this morning that has never trusted and repented in Jesus, your rebellion against God is evil. You have seen it. You feel it deep down in your soul. That sin separates you from God. And Jesus, all he does is he pays the huge price of your sin on the cross. He is the lamb mentioned here. The lamb that was slain for your sin. And he offers you paradise. Through repentance and faith. So if you believe in your heart this morning that Jesus is Lord and he raised him from the dead. You will be saved and you will conquer. Who are those that conquer? That comes in Revelation 12, verse 11. And they conquered him, who is the devil, the dragon, mentioned in 12, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. How are you going to conquer this morning? How are we going to conquer and survive, right? And how are we going to um, see this day and eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. It will only be by one method, by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Not any works that you have done. So we are all poor needy souls this morning. 
And if we could consider these amazing truths this morning, how much God loves us, how much Christ has done for us, we just need to ask ourselves, are we listening? We're so prone to forget the main thing. And all we must do now is listen and respond. My fear in the great tragedy of this morning would be you to hear that, be convicted in your heart and soul, and nothing change. Because it's ready to go watch the Bengals play the Chiefs. <laughs> Not I will be doing that. But that's you, know, you get what I mean. It's just on to the next thing. There is... This is the main thing. Turn. Repent. If God is so convicting you to do so. And if you love the Lord Jesus, continue to do it. The way we did at first. In your name we pray. Let's go, ahead and pr- go to God in prayer.